Hi, you're listening to the Food Adventures Podcast Season 2, and I'm your host, Beth Fuller. This is a podcast dedicated to all things food, from recipe ideas to interviews with chefs, producers, purveyors, farmers, and people who just love culinary adventures like myself. So join us here on Fridays to explore the world through the lens of food, and together we can share some yummy food, some laughs, and I welcome you here at my table always. And if you're ready, let's go on a food adventure together starting right now. Hey everyone, you're listening to the Food Adventures Podcast. I'm your host, Beth Fuller. This is season two, episode 30. If you've been listening for a while, well then you know what I'm about to say, and thank you for listening, by the way. (laughs) Don't take notes, I've taken notes. Go to my website for everything, elizabethrfuller.com. While you're there, of course, stop, take a minute. Take in my beautiful food and product photography. I'm a professional food and product photographer. It's what I do for a living. So if you need photos for your brand, for someone else's brand, for a cookbook, for uh, anything to do with food and product, I am your gal. Send me an email. If you've got questions for the podcast, if you want to be on the podcast, if you need culinary sleuthing of any kind. Send me an email. Let's go on a food adventure at gmail.com. And of course, tag me in all of your food adventures on Instagram. I love seeing them at let's go on a food adventure. All right, you guys, let's do this. Let's jump into it and let's go on a food adventure together. Oh my God, it's been forever. How are you guys? What's going on? What's happening? I feel like we haven't chatted since September. Could be wrong with that. Don't think I am because, 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 because of the wonderful things I does. Um, I got super sick in October and uh, you did not want to hear my super sick voice. So I decided to forego recording the podcast for a few weeks and I didn't have anything in the can. So I was like, well, we're just going to chug along. And I mean, I was so sick. I was trying to get through a couple of shoots with clients. Thank God they were remote. And I would I would be like pulling myself off the couch. I went through so many boxes of Kleenex uh, tissues that, I, oh, I should have bought stock in it. Um, no, I did not have COVID. No, I did not have the flu. I don't think I had RSV. I don't know. I, uh, pretty much can tell you exactly where I got it. It was just, it turned out, I mean, I got tested at my doctor's office for everything under the sun. I'm boosted. I'm vaxxed. I am, I'm good to go. Your girl is good to go. Unfortunately, because, uh, you know, I'm out in the world, but I'm not out in the world like I used to be. And uh, I don't have my like enough germs, I guess. So I have been going back to the gym since, I don't know, this summer. And I go often, but I go when it's really quiet. So it's like me and, you know, 10 other people maybe on the machines and no one's next to each other. But the week before I got sick, there was a couple of people, this is going to sound so silly, coughing and sneezing, not next to me, but like a few ellipticals over, like a whole, like, I mean, like there was a, there was a decent amount of space 
And I didn't think anything of it. And then all of a sudden I started feeling sick and it just was a wicked bad cold. And um, I guess I should be like licking a doorknob out in the world once a week to get my germ fill because this was ridiculous. Like a bad cold took your girl out, out. And then I had some incredible family that came into town from Colorado. I love you guys. And we had so much fun. Um, It was like a whirlwind week. And then next thing you know, it's November. <laughs> so here we are just in time for the holidays. Yay. Um, so many yummy things have been baking up in my kitchen. I've been like, I've been keeping up with the um, British Bake Off, the great British Bake Off with my girlfriends. And so since you and I talked, what have I made? I've made, I made the s'mores. Those were so effing good. Used a few other recipes that were not um, the British Bake Off recipes. I didn't use any from there. Me and a couple of my girlfriends cobbled together like three recipes and um, oh my God, they were so good. The, uh, God, I could eat chocolate ganache on pretty much anything. Um, I'm salivating thinking about it. What else did I make? Oh, I made, so one week it was a lemon meringue pie, I think was the technical. And I decided because I had so many blood oranges from a photo shoot uh, lying around, I was like, I'm going to do like a blood orange citrusy meringue pie. And it came out uh, okay. It tasted so good. It was... (laughs) She didn't look very pretty. No, no. But she tasted damn good. Um, And then this past week, it was the technical was the pistachio ice cream and the praline and the cones and all of that. And I made the ice cream and I made the praline. Didn't make the cones. Don't have a waffle cone maker. Wasn't going to get that. And rather than buying waffle cones, I was like, ah. I'm just going to eat the ice cream. And I did. And it was good. The The highlight for me, though, was the praline. Um, and those recipes, I'll link them uh, in the show notes. But they're all on the British Bake Off website, too. So they're great. I'm trying to think what else I've made. Oh, my God. I made. That was so good. Um, uh, Kenji Lopez he has he wrote a recipe for serious eats i think a while ago and it's for a french cassoulet but like kind of like the the best americanized version of it without using like duck um did use duck fat and that made a huge difference those beans were so effing good uh took so long worth every single second And one of the key things that he discovered when doing this recipe was in order to get the right texture and consistency with the cassoulet once it cooks down so it's not soupy, is you have to add a ton of gelatin to the stock that you're using. Because most, if you're using store-bought stock, it's still not gelatin-y enough. If you're using bone broth, um, that you're buying, that you're making, f- f- fucking a great. That might be gelatiny enough, but most likely it still might not be. Um, and if you're buying store bought bone broth, that's probably not either. So 
he, he troubleshot that by adding packs of gelatin, powdered gelatin to the broth, and it made a huge difference. I followed along with what he suggested loosely, and it came out so, so, so good. The beans in this recipe, oh my God, they, that alone is worth the effort. Um, and the other thing I made recently, and then we're going to get into the interview, I promise, is this focaccia. Um, I was inspired by the Stanley Tucci show, Searching for Italy. He recently went to Puglia, not in, I don't know if it was last week or whatever week it was. And that's where my family on my mom's side is. Um, her, her dad is all, the whole entire side of the family is from Puglia. Um, a little town called a village called Troia near Foggia. And they in that region there is Focaccia, and it is made in a very special way that you will never find, that you won't find anywhere else in Italy. And it has riced potato in it, and it is so good. <laughs> it's like the theme of this podcast. It is so good. Everything is so good. Um it really is. And I made it from scratch. I made two different versions of it. A very traditional version is plopping some cherry tomatoes in the dough and olives and uh, some oregano. Uh, so I made a version of that and big salad, ate it for dinner, and then topped each slice with a huge big hunk of burrata. Oh, it was so good. Uh, I made that recipe up. I cobbled together again, like three or four different versions of recipes that I had found and found, made my own. And it worked really, really, really well. I lucked out. It was kind of a warmish, humidish day here. Um, we have this really random stretch of wonderful warm weather that should not be here this time of year. Um, but it got my bread to rise. It made my focaccia rise. And it was, I'm going to have it for dinner tonight again. It was so good. So anyway, uh, let's get into this week's episode. I, I This interview was fantastic. And then right after we spoke, it was like two hours later, San Francisco had a huge earthquake. Uh, everything, I believe, is okay. I know it. we were like, just crazy that hours before we were chatting and then like two hours later they had like a 5.1 earthquake all right enough about that though let's get into it all right my guest this week he's a fascinating human he is someone who is very passionate about our oceans saving them as well and cleaning them up as well as the environment which we all really should be he worked for several years in the commercial fishing industry and aquaculture industries and really saw uh, on a large scale the negative impacts that they're having with overfishing pollution and the coastline destruction. And because of that, he decided to start a company, a snack company that there that is better for us and better for our oceans it is delicious it is nutritious and it is doing wonderful things out there in the world so please welcome to the podcast pat from 12 tides pat hey how's it going man so good to see you good uh, thanks for having me hey thanks for jumping on 
So um, your company is so cool. But before we jump into that, just can you tell the listeners a little bit about like who you are, where you're from, all that good stuff? Yeah, I'm Pat. I'm one of the co-founders of 12 Tides. We make ocean positive foods with kelp from regenerative ocean farms here in the U.S., um, I got started in this after a number of years in big seafood. I worked on everything from 100 meter factory trawling vessels to fish farms in Mexico, shrimp farms in Indonesia, fish processing factories in Australia and Germany and everything in between. Saw so, uh, all of the horrifying parts of the world of global seafood. Yeah. And that's intense. Yeah, it's, I don't know. It's not as intense as like, the media makes it out to be like everybody says deadliest catch and uh even deadliest catch i think is a little like dramatized for sure no i was watching or reading up on um uh indentured labor in the shrimping community and i had no idea how bad it really was and can be oh yeah well obviously (laughs) i wasn't on those boats but um yeah, I've got a story from you from when I was living in Australia. I met a guy while I was scuba diving, and uh, uh, he, Australian dude, uh, lived in Vietnam for like a couple of years, got a job offer from somebody to go work on a shrimping boat, essentially got stuck on the boat for like a year uh, without being able to get off, and he worked in the freezer for like more than 24 hours at a time. <gasps> Oh my God. And, uh, ended up losing one of his hands. So that's how it came up. I, I asked him eventually what happened to his hand. Had to cut it off because it uh, froze. That's in, it's, it's, it, it, yeah, it's it, and people have no yeah. idea yeah. what goes on. Um, okay. Sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. It's just you, you are, you've got such an insanely and in, in so interesting background. So please keep going. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, so and that's part of the problem with the seafood industry is that it's so it's so international. We import ninety percent of our seafood, and it's so opaque, and the supply chains are so long, and there's so many um, you know stops in between. That number one, you know, people have there's no um, uh, you know vision into what is actually going on at the primary producer level, and then secondly, primary producers have no incentive to do things the right way. Mm-mm. So. That's part of the problem with the industry. So, uh, you know, I, I thought a lot about you know ways to try to make that better. Um, but then I started to get to know a little bit about kelp and kelp farming. And what I thought was really compelling about kelp was that for all of that other stuff, like the best case scenario for the ocean is neutral and it'll probably never get there. And for fishing and aquaculture, but with kelp and regenerative ocean farming, it's an actively positive impact. So I wanted to try to support things that can be an active positive for the ocean rather than do less bad. Um, and so I, I started to get to know a bunch of people who were farming kelp like six or seven years ago. And this is sort of the earliest days of kelp farming in the US. Um, you know, it's grown pretty substantially since then. And one of the problems that I recognized was that, um, you know, while kelp, the kelp being farmed was growing up rapidly, the end markets, especially profitable end markets, were not developing at the same pace. And so um, I wanted to help this ecosystem. I'm not very good at farming kelp. It's actually a lot harder than uh, maybe the, 
media <laughs> makes it out to be. Yeah. And uh, requires a pretty significant sort of biological understanding. Um, but I thought I could help create those end markets that can help farmers be you know, profitable, help the whole kelp industry grow and stand on its own two feet. And so that's what we started with 12 tides. So we source kelp now directly from the farmers and um, process it in our own facility here in San Francisco. And we worked with a, a chef to make these awesome uh, puff chips. Mm -hmm. And those are our first product. Um, we're in about 900 retail stores up and down the US West Coast now. And uh, yeah, off and running. Yeah, no, they're absolutely delicious. Um, okay, I got to ask, after being in the seafood industry for so long and seeing uh, some pretty gnarly stuff, does it turn you off to eating seafood? Like, are you are you vegan now? Are you no, no, not I, a pescatarian? I, I, I do think that we can, um, uh, you know, harvest and eat seafood at a very small scale, like in very, like a lot less than we do today. But mm. You know, it can be done sustainably. Um, and the, in particular, there are a couple of other things that can be farmed in sort of a regenerative fashion, like shellfish, um, mm -hmm. you know, oysters and, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, other bivalves and stuff like that. So that, that stuff is great. Some seafood, a very small amount of seafood is okay, but I'm very picky about where it comes from. And like you, if the person like serving the seafood doesn't know exactly like, which vessel it came from and like who's the captain of that vessel then like i'm probably not eating wow i love that you drill down that deep on it um you know because a lot of i wish i knew more about it and i will definitely try to educate myself myself more i mean i grew up in new england i live here in new england so uh there is an abundance of beautiful fresh seafood and i buy directly from uh a fish market and i try to buy local from but I don't buy directly from the the fish boats. I have when I go to Maine, but not necessarily here in the Boston yeah. area. And I I think that's fascinating that you want to know the vessel it's caught on. Like uh, my hat goes off to you, man. Like that is so beautiful. That's a great ecosystem. They should know that. Good, good fish monitors should know that. Really? Yeah. Okay. Awesome. I will definitely ask. Like, uh, if you don't know where the the vessel is and then we'll get back into kelp i promise but i'm just fascinated by all of this um and we're a very food centric podcast if you didn't know exactly where the the fishing boat or the captain of the boat was is there a seafood that then you would lean on to eat just for the listeners out there who might be in a landlocked state and might not have access to the freshest seafood like we do living on a coast yeah, well, the first thing I would say would be some of those regenerative species, you know, farmed in North America, um, you know, like oysters, like shellfish. I know there's a little yeah. bit, it's harder to sometimes get those, at least fresh. You can still get them canned and do some interesting things. With yeah, canned. for sure. I think that's like a culinary open space uh, or culinary white space. But um, is there a species that... You would feel comfortable eating. That is... I don't think there's a single species where I could say like the whole species I'm I'm good with it. Fair enough. And that's the hard part about seafood is that it is so complicated. Like within, um, you know, any first of all, there's 
hundreds of different species that are you know, sold in the U.S. Within those, you have different combinations of like, is it farmed? Is it wild? Where is it farmed or wild and by who? Like what if it's wild, like what kind of type of gear is it caught with? And like, there's just, there's so many different permutations. And so like the inconvenient truth, I think, for consumers is that it's, it's really complicated. So, yeah. um, you know, that, that makes you, it's a, it's a big challenge for the industry. And I think, you know, people are becoming better educated slowly over time as information becomes more available, supply chains, whether they want to or not, are becoming more transparent. Uh, so it, we are sort of getting there, but it's, it's hard to make sort of blanket statements about seafood. Gotcha. No, and I appreciate you touching on that. And I feel like we could do a whole other podcast just about you and seafood um, because I would love to drill down even further with you. But we got to go back to kelp. We have to go back to kelp. Now, I've had your what kelp chips. No, it's still, it's still it is. Um, the kelp chips are amazing. But for those who don't know what kelp tastes like, how would you describe that? Yeah, well, uh, most people think of seaweed and mm -hmm. they think of like the nor the nori that they eat with their sushi. And like, that's the only like version of seaweed. But there are 10,000 different types of um, seaweed. And so, you know, comparing, you know, one to the other could be comparing like blueberries to potatoes mm -hmm. and just like assuming that they, you know, would taste the same because they both are grown on land. Um, and they all taste very different. They have very different textures. Um, and so our, there are three types of seaweed or macroalgae, and it's uh, red seaweeds, and that would include nori, brown seaweeds, which would include kelp, and green seaweeds, which would include like vulva that goes into your seaweed salad. Oh, okay. And so, you know, obviously uh, kelp is a brown seaweed, uh, whereas nori is a red seaweed. And... Uh, so it has a lot more of a, I would say, vegetal sort of profile to it um, rather than a very ocean forward profile. Yeah, I agree with you. Almost kind of like um, lacto-kale, sort of, in yeah. a in a way. Um, now, I, I this is just me kind of geeking out a little bit, but do different oceans have a different, have a, a flavor effect on the kelp? Meaning like the, cause I imagine the salinity plays into the salinity of the water that the kelp is grown in plays into some of the ultimate flavor profiles. And could you, I don't know where your kelp is grown and if it's grown all in the same ocean area, but would that give it a different flavor or taste? Um, yes, it, it, it's also kind of like apples and bananas a little bit oh, Okay, uh, because you can only farm kelp that is sort of native to that local because obviously it's out in the ocean it's going to release spores and etc so so you couldn't farm the exact same you know kelp on the east coast as you could on the west coast um and so it, it is sort of inherently a little bit different um how much of that is caused by the ocean like i'm i'm sure some of it but um I don't know if I, I even understand biology well enough to get into exactly okay. what would drive Fair enough. Change. Just geeking out with you. Yeah. Um, what are some of the benefits to eating kelp? Well, um, well he perked up for this one, guys. Yeah. Uh, I'd say there's sort of four different things. Number okay. one is that it's a regenerative crop. So growing kelp in the ocean is a net positive for the ocean. 
oceans absorb about 50% of the carbon dioxide that we throw into the atmosphere and the influx of that carbon dioxide in the ocean drives acidification, which is probably greatest risk to uh, biodiversity on earth um, and not just the oceans. Uh, and it has a whole bunch of other sort of ecosystem services. I won't get too far into that. What we could, if we had, if we had a whole yeah, other yeah. day, we could, and I would actually love to hear it, but please continue. Uh, second is that it's a zero input crop. It's one of the most resource efficient foods on the planet. Uh, so once you get it into the ocean, uh, there's no pesticides, no fertilizers, doesn't require any arable land, no fresh water. Um, so extraordinarily resource efficient. Third is that it is very nutrient dense. Um, it sort of concentrates all of the uh, vitamin and mineral goodness of the oceans. Um, you know, while it while it grows, and you can think of it sort of as like kale, but without all the pesticides. And lastly, is that you know all kelp right now is grown by small scale farmers in. Um, or all kelp grown in the U.S. is grown by very small-scale farmers. And I think it it has, and so by eating kelp, you're sort of supporting them. And kelp has this opportunity to provide a new sort of uh, avenue for economic growth that um, a lot of these coastal communities, especially coastal communities that have relied on fishing and seafood, haven't really had since like the 70s. Like the fisheries aren't like, grown anymore they're they're growing the opposite direction so uh you know it, it leverages a lot of the existing infrastructure and and just you know skill sets and and the asset base that's exists in these communities uh for a a more regenerative but also economically like productive avenue mm, that's awesome and your kelp is grown on uh, the West Coast near you, near San Francisco. No, no, it's uh, it's grown in Maine and Alaska. Oh, and... well, look at us here in Maine. Thank you, Maine, for growing kelp. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah it's, those are really the only two states that have commercial kelp farming operations right now. Maybe a couple others like sprinkled, you know, throughout so a few other states, but. The regulatory pathway for starting a kelp farm is uh, it, it differs by state because kelp farm is always done in state waters or within three miles. So uh, you got to get the permit from the state and um, every state has a different process and a lot of states just don't have a process. Uh -huh. so I think California would fit into that bucket of just like haven't gotten around to it like too many other things going on. <laughs> So I'm sure they will soon. It seems like if the industry is growing, why not? Right. And like, yeah, California, I'm sure has other like Maine has a lot of oyster farms. So I imagine that's probably one of the reasons it's a little bit easier. The infrastructure might already be there because of that kind of things. Um, but I'm yeah, sure well, California Maine, will catch Maine up. had a uh, longstanding um, sort of wild harvest seaweed business as well and so they mm. have a lot of the end markets and a lot of the infrastructure um due to that um obviously wild harvesting is not really growing anymore either but uh that gave them sort of a big leg up and then you know big history and sort of the seafood industry in alaska is similar so mm -hmm. um you know a lot of experience in uh in the seafood industry infrastructure built up around that and i think 
um, you know, the desire of, of regulators in those states to kind of unleash this new um, economic opportunity uh, that hasn't existed where, you know, states as a proportion of, you know, the state's GDP, it's where seafood is just not very big, like California, like, uh, you know, the, the focus on unleashing this new economic alternative is just kind of like the bottom of the to-do list because it's, it was never a big part of the you know, mm. state income stream. Gotcha. Uh, do you, oh, one, one other quick question before we dive into listener questions. What makes the chips so puffy? They are so puffy and delicious and crunchy. What makes the chips so puffy? Yeah. So um, we got a very weird way of making them. Um, and you can't make chips out of kelp in the same way that you would make any other product. They, they, every other product is made out of these massive, like room sized basketball court size, like extrusion machines. It goes through like a bunch of heat and pressure and it comes out as this like puff thing. You can't really do that with kelp. So um, we had to sort of invent this new little process of like making the kelp into this like gooey kelpy dough um, and then uh, cutting it into chips and then sort of popping it in this special oven um, where it's kind of pops like a piece of popcorn. I, I think some of the like kind of gelatinous nature of the kelp, um, I think ends up helping it sort of pop, but then also get that, you know, firm. It holds texture. its shape. Yeah. I mean, they are the tech, if you like texture and you like crunchy things, these are definitely for you listeners. Um, and I really, they're absolutely all the flavors. You've got three flavors that I know of and they're delicious, delicious. Um, all right, let's dive into some listener questions. Uh, some are definitely because in your bio, it mentions that you are very passionate about the environment. So a couple are a little um, environmental questions too, which I know you'll be able to definitely answer or give some two cents. Becca from Instagram writes, I am super passionate about helping to do my part for what I can for the environment, but it's really disheartening when you hear things like recycling isn't really recycling. And so much of it actually doesn't get recycled. And then to see how much as a society we have trashed the oceans. I would love some advice on what I can do to make a difference, even a small one, to help protect the oceans. Oh, I know. I, That's why I you won't. started a kelp company. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if, how much I want to unpack the recycling thing, but I, I'll maybe touch on it real quick because um, uh, she's she's right. What, it was Rebecca, right? Um, yeah, Becca. Mm -hmm. Becca. Uh, so we have this compostable pouch and mm -hmm. we have spent an enormous amount of time on that, like probably too much. Like most people would tell me to just give up on it and like focus on making kelp chips. Like you're not a packaging company, whatever. Um, but, you know, we're an ocean positive company, obviously like traditional plastics do not have very good impact on the oceans. And so we had to do something there and, and we want to try to, you know, push um the whole ecosystem toward alternatives because we know what doesn't work and it's it's petroleum-based plastics and this sort of notion of recycling which um you know if i'm i'm being harsh is is like nothing more than a lie mm -hmm. uh, and 
you know, there are alternatives out there. And I think, you know, this notion of recycling or like even, um, you know, plastic offsetting and stuff is kind of just like the easy way out for for brands and companies to say like, oh, but, you know, we're doing this because our like flexible plastic pouch is like recyclable. Like, no, it's not. Like, no, no, it's just getting thrown away in a dumpster because yeah. China's not taking it anymore. And even then they didn't take much. And then yeah, they just burned it. No, yeah, none of that's getting recycled yeah. into you know, new stuff. So, um, you know, people should be looking at reducing and uh, plastics in all of their packaging, as well as, you know, finding alternative materials and our alternative end of life um, than plastics are now. And, and that's what we're trying. It doesn't matter how many like kelp chips we sell. We will never make any sort of meaningful dent in like the amount of plastic that's being produced. But we want to try to use our packaging and our messaging to get people to start asking questions of um, you know some of the bigger companies of like why are you not investing in alternatives? That's awesome. So that, that that's our hope. Um, getting back to her original question of like how can I you know get involved? Mm -hmm. um, whew, uh, <laughs> that's a big one. I I think it. Uh, I think it depends a little bit on like what you're passionate about. Like there's no one thing that's going to, you know, solve climate change, but, um, you know, depending on where you live and, and what you're like personally passionate about, like I love scuba diving. And so um, the idea and what we've got involved with, with 12 tides is, is kelp restoration, you know, wild kelp forest restoration here in California. Um, because a, uh, I love scuba diving and scuba diving in kelp forest is awesome. And I want them to like exist in the world for a very selfish reason. And, you know, B, it has like a huge, you know, climate impact. And, and so it was a great intersection of just like what one thing that I'm personally passionate about and like a, a something that can have a meaningful climate impact. We're not going to save the world with kelp forest by itself, but um, you know, if you can try to like just tie something into or, or, you know, pair up something that you're personally like passionate about or good at um, with something that has like positive climate impact. Like, I think that's uh, you know, a way to get started. Yeah, absolutely. And even like, for example, we in my own household, we were looking oh. at how much waste with even like laundry detergent right mm -hmm. like and so you see these big plastic tubs so then from there i went to obviously the pods are not a solution and then i went to the the laundry sheets right where it's like the sheet but then i did a lot of research and figured out they actually contain microplastics that when it goes into the water it affects the whole ecosystem mm -hmm. so then i found a compostable that's made out of paper liquid laundry detergent whatever and it's supposed to be refillable for the plastic jug but i just don't refill any plastic jugs with it mm -hmm. so i mean it's stuff like that too becca that i think you could drill down on your daily consumerness of it all too and then when you have extra bandwidth and time like look at a bigger picture cause too and kelp farms are beautiful i have not scuba dived in a kelp farm but i lived in san diego and i know that there i could be wrong but i think there's a, supposed to be a very special mm -hmm. one um in la jolla Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's uh, they're really kelp forest. Kelp forest. Sorry. Up. Yeah. You got to get pretty far down into Mexico before you start to, um, you start to lose them. So yeah, um, they're it's beautiful. pretty much Alaska down to Southern California. Yeah. 
spectacular okay Kara in new york says i'm a huge snacker and i'm always looking for new and healthy snacks to try i was looking in my local market and i didn't see your chips where can i find them do you ship uh from online yeah we're really only in retail stores in on the west coast right now um you know washington oregon california arizona hawaii um you can also find us online on thrive market uh, we are um, available nationwide via Thrive and also our own website as well, 12sides.com. Awesome. I'll link everything in the show notes for you guys. Elise in Portland, Oregon writes, I watch a lot of Shark Tank and it seems like getting into the snack space is not the easiest space to get into. Um, and getting that prime shelf space in a grocery store seems like it could be really challenging. As a thriving entrepreneur, what do you, what advice do you have for someone who is looking to start their own snack company? Holy smokes. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a, it's a broad range. Um, it, it is a challenging space. I, I think I would have two like very broad pieces of advice. Um, hopefully it's not too broad that it's unhelpful, but I think number one is that you got to just like get started. Um, and so we started at farmer's markets, like, don't worry about getting into Whole Foods. Like that's, well, you know, way down the road, um, just get started, find a place to start making your product, um, you know, get into some farmer's markets, you know, see if people will start coming back time and time again, um, you know, to buy it, uh, it gives you an opportunity to, refine your recipe and your marketing and all of that stuff at a very like low cost level. Um, and it, if you just get started there, then uh, it's, it's just less daunting than having to, you know, try to do some like big brand, picture brand launch and spend like, you know, half a million dollars on it or whatever. Or more. Um, yeah. Yeah. Or more. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, when that, that's how we got started. And, and as soon as we, I spent like nine months doing that too, which, which was like a grind. So, yeah. uh, you know, getting up at like four 30 in the morning to like go set up at the farmer's markets and, um, but it was, it was valuable. And when we got to the point where at the farmer's markets, like people were like lining up or like finding me before the farmer's market started to like buy a case from me because they knew that I was going to sell out, like, that's when you knew you had something bigger. Yeah, than, that's when we yeah. knew we were, you know. Time to grow. Yeah. Did we you, good. when you were R&Ding the chip, did you do a lot on your own or did you go right to a facility to help R&D this? Because it doesn't seem like something you could do in your home kitchen to like try to figure um, out. Yeah, so uh, just like legally, uh we did not fit like the definition of like a cottage food business. I, I think some, it depends on your state and everything, but yeah. uh, you know, some food products you can like bake in your own kitchen and you know, go sell them at the farmer's market. Um, for most products, you can't do that. So you have to be in a, a licensed or commissary and you have to get your own like permit from the health department and stuff yeah. like that. So, so we had to do all that. Yeah. So, but you can find like a shared commissary space mm -hmm. um, or even, uh, you know, I've heard of people doing really, so there's shared commissary spaces sometimes can be sort of expensive. Uh, I've heard of people uh, contacting, like if you're making a, a bakery product, like contacting all the local bakeries and be like, hey, can I make 
my product like in your store like during the hours where you're not very busy mm -hmm. which is savvy yeah that is no hey we all have to be savvy especially when you're grinding and you're starting out like you mean even you're probably still i know you're still grinding it doesn't matter <laughs> you will oh, yeah. grind my friend forever in the best way possible okay sarah in new hampshire this is these are a lot of questions that are all packed into one big question so that godspeed um sarah new hampshire writes what is your take on the lobster battle should they be red listed oh, oh no keep well, hold on Jeez. do their lines impact an endangered the north american whale secondly what are your thoughts on feeding cows seaweed i heard on the on the david chang or i heard david chang talking recently on his podcast that when cows eat seaweed they expel far less co2 Which one do you, where do you uh, want to start? And I can always go back and, and yeah, the, on the lobster one, like that is, um, a very intense debate. Um, and I, I understand sort of both sides of it, um, you know, pretty significantly, you know, I know a lot of, you know, fishermen and, um, you know, and, and a few in that fishery and, you know, people's, you know, livelihoods depend on this and, and that red listing is is pretty meaningful what could you um, explain to the listeners what it means to be red listed for those who don't yes know? so the monterey bay aquarium um you know via their kind of uh you know seafood watch criteria will um assign ratings to every different species depending on which fishery comes from how it's caught uh um, you know, is the farm wild, et cetera, you know, kind of red, uh, red, yellow, green. And I think there should be a blue level. I'm mm. trying to pitch to them. That's regenerative. Mm. It's like, I love that. Green. Anyways, uh, it's red, yellow, green. And, th and then a lot of retailers, I think mostly retailers, I don't know if this happens a lot in like food service, but have basically have a policy that we like don't source red stuff. And so when, um, you know, that falls down, when the lobster falls down into the red, then a whole bunch of retailers now potentially are not going to buy your product. And that lowers the market prices um, for the fishermen, which were already pretty tight. Mm -hmm. So it, it has a, a very significant impact on kind of the market for or lobster um there's you know i i am not uh you know, necessarily a lobster expert also my sister works for national marine fishery service in, in dc and so i has been heavily involved in that as well and and i think i would just say that i am not an expert enough on that particular fishery to really there's a lot of science that goes into yeah you know, all, all of this policy making and um, to really comment on like, you know, does the fishery have an impact on the right whale population? I think there's, you know, arguments both ways. Um, and so I, I don't know if I can say sort of definitively, you know, one way. I don't know if anybody can say definitively one way or another. No. And if something gets red listed, it can get taken off the red list. Um, oh, yeah. Can it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm yeah. sure it's very fluid. So. 
And for the lobster, I think I could be wrong, but the reason they want to red list it is because the populations are dwindling and kind of like I could be wrong with that. But like how uh, King Crab this year ain't going to happen. Yeah, uh, I, I think it was a slightly different uh, scenario than um, the right whale endangered. Like, I, right. I don't think there's quite as much of a population impact with the, the crab season in, in Alaska. That's uh, that that's scary. And that's. And that's where I think, um, you know, having this economic alternative of kelp farming for, you know, people in these coastal communities, like if, you know, something like this happened, or maybe if it continues to happen and, um, you know, that normal pathway is, is uh, just, you know, nor that's, yeah. uh, you know, way of living is no longer there anymore. This is another uh, alternative to generating. Yeah, them. yeah. Here's a great alternative. And so that's ocean positive. That's eco positive. Yeah. yeah, I agree. And like for those who don't know, the reason that and I could be wrong with this, that king crab isn't happening this year. It's because of the ocean temperatures rising and the population has dwindled and they cannot fish it. So um the environmental impact is real. And speaking of environment in environmental impacts, what are your thoughts on feeding cow seaweed? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. So feeding cows seaweed, a um, couple things I would say about that. Number one is that it's a little bit different than what we're doing. We want to grow kelp in the ocean to realize a lot of the ecological benefits, you know, in the ocean. And the with the whole feeding cow seaweed thing, that it's a very specific type of seaweed that mm -hmm. has that impact, and it's called asparagopsis. And that doesn't grow naturally in um, the continental United States. And so it's mostly being cultivated in tanks, pretty much entirely being cultivated in tanks on land. Uh... And when you do that, um, and not to just like hate on the idea, but like you don't get the regenerative sort of, right. of, of farming kelp in the ocean. So it's just a little bit different than sort of our focus at, at 12 Tides. Um, and, you know, we'll see, I, I think it's, it's still sort of a long road to realizing its full, um, potential. Yeah. Realizing its full potential or even completing kind of its full, uh, you know, testing mm -hmm. process and it will require an enormous, um, recirculating aquaculture system. Like I've been involved in those in the past and, you know, the, and if you look at some of the big recirculating aquaculture aquaculture systems for like salmon that are being built, like the timeline for that is in the decades. Right. So, um, and that's probably not very good for the environment to make these huge facilities because you're taking down trees, you're, you know, doing whatever to the land on top of, am I right with all this? Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a lot of resources that go into, you know, building these, um, you know, giant recirculating facilities. Yeah. I'm not really a, an advocate of recirculating aquaculture for fin fish. Um, you know, if, if the methane emission reduction is what people say it is for this type of seaweed, then, um, you know, I think that could have some you know, interesting benefits, but just eat uh, less meat, man. Just eat, eat less meat. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> come on. Eat that, more kelp. Eat more veggies. 
I, I'm not opposed to like a little like seaweed supplement that maybe, you know, because there's no, there's no harm in doing that. But um, yeah, I think we need to eat way less meat. Yeah. And, but I think a little bit of meat is, oh, yeah. uh, is okay. And if it's, you know, uh, farmed on regenerative, uh, you know, mm -hmm. cattle farms who are really doing things the right way, um, then, you know, so we got a grant at the in our earliest days from the the Tomcat Center, and and they also operate the Tomcat Ranch uh, near uh, near Stanford. And I think there's kind of growing number of examples of people who can you know farm uh, or can um, you know run cattle operations in a, a very sustainable and sort of regenerative way. And you know, I think my ideal for the future would be to not like get rid of that entirely, but just you know, reduce all the factory farming. And I would put recirculating aquaculture in the yeah. camp of factory farming. Like there's, totally. there's no other way to describe that than factory farming. And uh, yeah, it's just a prettier way to describe factory farming, to be honest, when you say, yeah, yeah, I know. Um, I know, you know hundreds yeah. of th thousands of salmon in one like tank on land. Like there's, there's nothing, you know, natural environment about that. No. And again, just, if people would just reduce the amount that they're consuming and just like you said, find ethical, sustainable ways to, to consume what they want to in smaller quantities, we'd all be a little bit better off. But before I let you go, I always ask everyone this, what are you currently making at home right now? Are you a cook? Are you a foodie? I know you love television. Uh... You don't have a lot of time, but if you good, do, yeah, good question. What do I make at home? Yeah, um, like right now, like what is your what is your new obsession? What's your jam? Uh, so I'm not really like a cook, and that's uh, mm -hmm. that's not my expertise at uh, Twelve Tides um, or like a chef by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but as far as what I eat, um, you know, I I get my groceries from you know, good eggs. And I think they do a pretty good job with a lot of the organic produce and, um, you know, knowing who and having who their farmers are and having the supply chain transparency. And so I, I like that. Um, I'm a very simple, just like roasted vegetable person. So like whatever the vegetable of the season is like, I will like chop it up and throw it in the oven, like salt, pepper. Yeah. You're making like a little bowl. You're a bowl yeah. kind of guy. Like put it all in a bowl, plop. I almost never think about dinner more than five minutes before I start making it. So shut up. Uh, yeah, the, usually I'll just revert back to like chop up vegetables, like put it on a pan, put it in the oven. Awesome. Hey, you got a lot of other things going on. So how can people find you? How can they get a hold of you? Uh, yeah, um, you can find me on uh, LinkedIn. Um, you know, feel free to reach out to me there. Uh, but yeah, uh, and check out 12 Tides. You can send us a DM, uh, follow our, our you know, TikTok as well. We got really cool kelp reforestation content there. Uh, and yeah, you can find 12 Tides in uh, all of the California and, and West Coast uh, Whole Foods locations, as well as online at Thrive Market, uh, Good Eggs and Imperfect Foods. Awesome. I will link all of that in the show notes. Last question. I ask everyone this, and I used to always say if COVID wasn't a thing, I mean, it is and it isn't. Um, if you had all the money in the world, where are you going and what are you eating? Where it, uh, You're going on a scuba trip somewhere, I am sure. Yeah. Where are you going? What are you eating? What are you doing? Uh, Tell me. 
you know, just, just for travel, if I had all the money in the world, yeah. it'd go toward um, ocean conservation, but. Ooh, that's very uh, kind of you, but you, you need to do something for yourself and go somewhere. Where are you going? Um, I have never been to the Galapagos. And I think for mm. some, for somebody who is, you know, a big, you know, ocean person, um, that is an area where I'd, I'd really like to spend some time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's probably a little touristy, but, uh, I think it would still be cool. Yeah. Um, is there, is that like a, is there a dive spot in the world? Is that like your dive bucket list spot is diving in the Galapagos? Yeah, I think that would be as about as close as you can get to bucket list for me. Did you do the blue hole in Belize? No, I haven't done that one. Um, I actually have Google Maps up next next to me. I, I haven't really thought about this one too much, but I'll, I'll say Galapagos. Okay, you'll you'll be like Ted from Schitt's Creek. I love it. That's awesome. Yeah. There you go. Pat, it was such a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks again for taking time. And I feel like I could talk to you forever about the oceans and I'll link everything in the show notes to you and your company. And and I really want people to support you in every way possible because you're doing some wonderful things out there in the world. Thank you for having me. All right, awesome. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Pat, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and chatting with us. If you want to eat some of Pat's delicious snacks at 12 Tides, go to my website, elizabethrfuller.com, and click on the show notes tab. You'll see everything we talked about in this episode there. And uh, this, again, I didn't say it at the top, but I'll say it now. This is not a sponsored podcast episode. This is just a delicious snack with a delicious company who's doing some wonderful things out in the world. So check them out. If you've got questions for the podcast, send me an email. Let's go on a food adventure at gmail.com and tag me in all of your food adventures on Instagram at let's go on a food adventure. All right, you guys, thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a great weekend ahead. Lead with kindness, make some yummy food together, and I'll see you next Friday. Bye.